Well, hello. Hello and welcome. Welcome. I'm Ashley. And I'm Brittany. Welcome to More Than a Season podcast. If you are new, welcome to our amazing community. And if you're an OG, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much for choosing to be here. We know there's a lot of options, so we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. And if y'all could just pause and on this episode right now, if you are listening on Apple, if you're listening on Spotify, whatever platform you choose, give us a follow and subscribe. And if you could leave us a review, it really means more than you could ever know. It helps us on the back end of things. And of course, we would love to be able to continue to grow this podcast and grow our community and that is the way that we do it. Yeah, so we appreciate you taking the time to do that. And this week is a wonderful week because the guys are on spring break. It's so exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know you're soaking up the sun in California mm-hmm. right now. It's the best to be in California. And the weather is just always so nice and you can lay out by the pool and all of that. So it's really nice to be home. Yeah, I'm jealous. We are actually going to go to Nashville this weekend. So I'll take everyone along on my journey here and see what Carson had planned. I let him plan it this time. So we'll see what happens. That'll be so fun. I love Nashville. Mm -hmm. You'll definitely have to show all of the restaurants that you guys go to and the bars and all the fun stuff that you guys end up doing because it's a fun time there. Yeah, I definitely packed the flat brim hat. I'm ready. Yeah. And the boots. Yeah. (laughs) Got to have the boots. You got to have the cowboy boots. Yes. The white boots. Did you pack your white boots? Oh, I packed the white boots. Yeah. Got to have the white cowboy boots. (laughs) Yes. And last week, if y'all tuned in, we did something different. Yeah, it was really fun. We ended up getting to dive into our first ever episode of our crime and sports series, which we are going to be starting. If you didn't listen yet, you can still do so. We're going to be doing that every month and we Mm -hmm. will be trying it out and seeing how you guys like it. We like to switch things up a little bit, see what you guys like, see what you prefer. So if you ever have an idea and you ever want us to talk about a certain topic, definitely reach out because we're always looking for new ideas. But if you have a crime or It doesn't have to be murder. I mean, I know we all like we're murder junkies (laughs) over here, but it doesn't have to be that. But if you have a crime in a sport that you think we should dive into, then let us know because we are looking for our next episode topic. Yes. And your girls are on YouTube. So if you can't get enough of our voices, then come see our faces (laughs) on the video. So yeah, we are on YouTube for the crime and sports series. And it's really cool because that's just something that Brittany and I have been trying to do for a long time. So it's really cool to see it happening so check us out we will leave the link in our show notes so that you guys can subscribe to our youtube channel and just make sure that you don't miss a single episode Yes, love that. And this episode that y'all are about to hear is a topic that we have not talked about so far. And so diversity and inclusion is a huge one. And so Connie does an amazing job breaking the ice and bringing this topic to light. Yes. So Connie wears a lot of hats Mm -hmm. and her husband is a wrestling coach. She's also a mama and she's in the process of getting her PhD currently. And she's also bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion to the courses at college. And so she's got a lot of different things going on. And so she dives into the importance of diversity and inclusion and what we can do in the sports industry to better ourselves, but also better our significant others. Because I think sometimes they don't see the perspective that we bring to this sports industry and we can provide a different viewpoint because of the things that we've been through or, you know, conversations that Mm -hmm. we've had. And so I think that was really interesting to me. 
Yeah, this episode is very insightful. I learned a lot, and I think that diversity inclusion is such a big topic that a lot of the time it can come off scary or intimidating to those that don't even know where to get started or they don't want to do anything in the wrong way. So we definitely feel you on that. And Connie just clears it up and puts it in such an easy way to understand. So tune in and listen because this is one you definitely don't want to miss, and we'll see you on the other side. We are so excited for this episode today. We are. We have been trying to find the perfect person to talk about diversity and inclusion. We know it's a huge topic and we've gotten a lot of requests for it. So we've been digging around trying to find this person. Yeah, we're so excited to have our guest on and we're not going to waste any more time. We're going to throw it on over to her and let her introduce herself. Sure. Hi, ladies. I'm so excited to be here today. (laughs) So... I, first off, I'll say, I don't know if there is a perfect person to talk about (laughs) diversity and inclusion as we're all going to have different perspectives and different experiences with those. And I'm sure after today, we'll have some more clarity even on how we can go about continually investing in diversity and inclusion and equity and justice, which is part of my life's mission, honestly. But I'm Connie Skinner. And I reside on the south side of Indianapolis with my husband and four kiddos. I have four kids under the age of 11, (laughs) three older boys, 11, nine, seven. And then my princess, the baby, (laughs) Noelle, she is five. My husband is a health teacher and the head wrestling coach at one of our local high schools here. This is his sixth season here, but his... 12th season as a head coach and 13th season coaching overall, but he's been in wrestling his whole life. And then for me, (laughs) I am a PhD candidate studying higher education at Indiana University. And a candidate means basically I've completed literally almost every single steps in my program, except writing my dissertation. Wow. And that's a whole process. So I'm just taking my time on that as a mom (laughs) and a coach's wife. It, the investment is pretty intense when it comes to a PhD program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually my background education wise, I have a bachelor's degree in communication and that really led into my involvement and loving of sports because I had an internship at Purdue University for sports marketing. I have two master's degrees. One is in sports pedagogy and administration, so that's the studying of the science of coaching wow. and sport and a master's of public health. And so that has led me to my current full-time position at Indiana University School of Medicine, where I am the curriculum design specialist for our faculty development team. And my focus is in designing educational programming, development materials for faculty on diversity and inclusion. So that's a little bit about me. And then on this side, I have a side hustle too, which actually has gotten me through the isolation (laughs) that comes with being a coach's wife. And I work with a clean beauty company called Beauty Counter. So that's in a nutshell, all the things. The fact that you just said on the side and you had like (laughs) 7,000 things and then you're like, and on the side, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I would be 
a mess and you are just not you're so well put together so we are so happy to have you here and we're happy to kind of dive into all of your experiences I want to talk about like when you first got into the wrestling industry we don't we've only interviewed one other person in wrestling and so we want to kind of dive into that first and kind of talk about what your experience was like and how that has been for you so far sure I'll be honest when I was younger my husband is gonna kill me for this (laughs) but he, he knows he knows when I was younger, I had such a misconception about wrestling and it was primarily appearance, mm-hmm. right? I just was like, who are these boys rolling around in these <laughs> like speedo looking things <laughs> with straps and just rolling around on a mat? And I had no idea what I was looking at. And even in high school at the time, I had a boyfriend who wrestled, but I never went to any of his wrestling things. So I had no idea what was going on. Um, but then I get to college at Purdue and at the time when I was doing sports marketing internship, I was working with women's soccer and women's volleyball. And I did some football stuff. Football was intense. I think you guys would probably know. Um, but when it comes to marketing and stuff, being on the sidelines, you know, managing when the cheerleaders can go, when the band can go, when can we run a commercial? That was like kind of me and my team. And I said, I was never going to date an athlete because I did not want it to interfere with what I was doing, where I was going. And yeah, that didn't work out. (laughs) I ended up meeting, meeting my husband at a party of one of my intern colleagues. And that evening we just hit it off and I'd never laughed harder in my entire life. Then when I was with my husband's name's Nick, then with Nick, And from that moment, I thought to myself, first of all, wrestlers, okay, this is college me, but wrestlers are very good looking. (laughs) And physically, my soon to be husband was like a God to me. I just remember seeing him at one point and be like, oh my God, I didn't know men were made like this. So (laughs) it was physically easy to be with my husband and attracted to him. And then, like I said, our chemistry, we just laughed and laughed. And so from then on, I said, if I want to be this person's significant other, and I'm a very loyal person as it is, I I was raised Italian and (laughs) there's some cultural stereotypes that come with that, but it's not really stereotypes. Like we are to the death. (laughs) And I just like, if I'm going to be a good girlfriend, I got to know what he's doing. And it was not funny anymore because he wrestled division one in the big 10 and to be on that level, it is elite. Like our Olympians come from the big 10, our, you know, world representatives come from primarily big 10. Now, no, knock on other conferences. We've got some amazing uh, wrestlers that come from other conferences too, but it's an elite commitment. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. They are a whole different culture, a whole breed in themselves. And what probably made me realize with wrestling was the commitment was a hundred percent, 24 seven. It wasn't just on the mat in the strength training room. These guys were maintaining their weight or trying to maintain a weight and still had to wake up at 6am for a workout, you know, go to classes while they were hungry, take a test while they were starving. And then also think, what you're eating, how you're acting, how, how well are you sleeping? It's a 24 seven commitment. Yeah. So from then on out, I went to all of his stuff and I, to this day, remember 
watching the first ever. And I didn't know terms at the time either. I was like, oh, we're going to a game. And my husband, well, then boyfriend died. He said, don't ever call it a game. It is a match or a duel. We don't play either. We don't play wrestling. We don't play sports. We freaking wrestle. And I was like, okay. And then I go to this duel. And I like, I get it. I get why there's no playing here. It was intense. I mean, my husband's knee was like behind his head and, you know, then they pick each other up and they slam each other down. And I didn't know what was going on. All I remember is being like, I've never seen anything like it before in my life. And they don't have anyone else. It's not like WWE where you can like tag somebody in. That's it. That's all you got. You got yourself and your strength and your training and your skills. And it's intense. So that was my introduction into the wrestling world hard and fast. <laughs> yeah, I feel like with wrestling, it is such a tight community. I went to Oklahoma State and I met my significant other. Very similar story. Hey. Yep. Yeah, very similar. intense wrestling. Yes. <laughs> but he was on the football field. I did the marketing internship and I was the same way. Never dating hey. someone in the sports industry. And then boom, it happened. So I get it. <laughs> but I will, I will be quick to say that wrestling is so intense and I do mm-hmm. think that it takes a lot. And from the outside, for those that are very new to wrestling and the concept it is what are some misconceptions that like people think about wrestling or the lifestyle that you're like that is not right at all (laughs) I guess I can really only go off of what I hear now Mm -hmm. I mean one of them is exactly how it was like for me in high school I was like who are these bullies rolling around you know I didn't Mm -hmm. know I didn't know there's also this misconception that wrestling is a dangerous sport and I'll counter that with It is a very physically demanding sport, Mm -hmm. but we actually in wrestling have significantly less injuries than most other sports because of the training that's involved with wrestling, which is you have to understand how your body moves. It's like an art in a way. I envision if we were to train a wrestler and get them, you know, you know how they say like some, some football players, they'll do ballet, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also for football and amazing training is wrestling because of the body awareness and having to truly understand how every bit of your muscle memory works together to keep you safe. And a lot of times in the sport, what your body will naturally do to protect itself is exactly what you should be doing in this sport. What you might see from the outside is like, if somebody's trying to pin somebody else and it looks like their shoulder is going to come out, or I've seen a lot of like elbow dislocations or things where you're like, that shouldn't happen. And, but those are extreme. And I, I really do say, I don't see it all the time. It's not an, a quick thing. So it's not dangerous. If you have the right coaches that teach you the skills that you need to be a good wrestler, it's not dangerous because you should never be pulling somebody over. If you really feel like your shoulder's about to pop out, your coach will tell you like, get on your belly. Like, don't, don't just fight it because you're going to hurt yourself. And maybe another misconception is like, these athletes are starving themselves. Yeah. And I used to think that I, I really did. First of all, in elementary, it is unhealthy for kids to be cutting weight or making a certain weight. My husband's philosophy is very much so if your son or daughter weighs 60 pounds this weekend and 65 pounds next weekend, we may of course want them in the lighter weight because they can be more physically competitive. However, please let your kids eat. Let them sleep, let them drink water. They're kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then as you get into high school, what I know, at least with 
what I've experienced is if you see a wrestler who is like, I'm, I'm cutting weight or I, I can't eat today or all those things. There's a couple of things happening. One is they just aren't given the tools to do healthy nutrition Mm -hmm. and weight management. But two, I believe that our nutrition and health industry, not health industry, our food industry markets things to kids that they should not be having. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't mean that to like be judgy in any way out there. Moms, please listen. (laughs) My kids eat things sometimes too, but sugar is so addicting. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've got wrestlers who are normally healthy at a certain weight, but they'll go and eat fast food, drink pop, have candy, all the things our body isn't meant to process. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh crap. I'm like five pounds overweight and I got to weigh in in two days. Mm -hmm. And so if there's things that happen, it's not really cutting weight. It truly is the body's way of getting rid of toxins and boys will naturally. And I, want to preface this with, we could definitely use inclusive terminology here. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. men born at birth as male Mm -hmm. have an easier time as the more testosterone somebody has, the easier it is to lose weight Mm -hmm. quickly. Like they can float pounds overnight versus women born female Mm -hmm. and biologically have more female hormones especially if they're on their period or something, good luck. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we, yeah. we aren't floating anything. In fact, in our sleep, we'll probably gain like two pounds. And doing nothing. Hell, <laughs> doing nothing. Like yeah. look, looking, looking at a, at an app, we'll yeah. gain like yeah. three pounds. So, yeah. and then college is, it is different because it becomes, I feel like college athletes, and this is a personal opinion, but they are considered like a business. Mm -hmm. And so it's your, you walk into a program and for example, my husband at Purdue walked in at saying, I want to be 174 pounds weight class. And he was trying to get 20 pounds a week off because he naturally physically was almost 200 pounds and 20 pounds a week is not healthy. But when you tell your coach, this is what I want to weigh, or that's where you can start. That's where things can start to maybe get a little unhealthy. And I think, again, it's a coach's responsibility to step in and say, mm-hmm. hey, this isn't healthy. Yeah. So I think when it comes to, to making weight and weight management, it doesn't have to be a scary, mythical thing. But I also think there's a lot of miseducation out there for parents. And if I had more time, <laughs> I would do a lot more community work with my parents when it comes around to nutrition. So yeah, I would say maybe those two, two are like the myths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's such a technical component that you've mentioned that a lot of people don't understand behind it, like how the body works and kind of the nutrition and everything that you're learning. And it's not just like going out there and just like you just said, rolling around. You have these like technical things that you're working on and doing behind the scenes that kind of nobody sees. So I love the way that you kind of shed some light into that. So you guys are super busy. Your husband is doing stuff 24-7. You're doing stuff 24-7. You have kids. I mean, tell us how you have raised your children in this lifestyle because you guys are all so busy. So what are some parenting things that you've learned being in the sports industry? It's come and gone. Like there have been ebbs and flows in all of this. And I think I still struggle with this idea of whose family does he belong to? And it's not intentional, right? Like we are so busy. There are days I literally am like, honey, I cannot make dinner tonight. I need you to pick something up. 
And this dude walks through the door with no dinner, you know, like <laughs> he forgets, you know, and he comes home and we're like, oh, come on, we're starving here. Like you could have done something today to contribute. But I, I definitely don't take it as a personal thing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, my husband and I are going to be married for 15 years in September and it's taken me a long time to learn this sense of give and take. Mm-hmm. And I refuse to buy into anything like work-life balance or <laughs> coach's life balance. Like I just, there is none. No, there yeah. is none. You know, when you're a coach, you're either all, all in or not. Mm-hmm. And in a sport like wrestling, when you said my husband's 24 seven coaching, he literally is because a lot of high school coaches, uh, they run club teams mm-hmm. and that's what we call like a feeder program. It's how we really hopefully get the younger kids to learn basic skills. So by the time they get to high school, we're not teaching them a takedown or, right. a, mm-hmm. you know, certain moves that we can start teaching them more advanced stuff and mind mindset and mental work. But it it's been hard. I had no idea when my husband was done wrestling in college and I had my first child, we were really excited at the time. He was an assistant coach at a high school near Purdue because we were both still in our master's program. And I was like, oh, I can take my one son anywhere. I can take him to a tournament. He slept through whistles and buzzers and (laughs) crazy things and noises. And, you know, I take him to practice. And then all of a sudden, when I found out I was pregnant with my second kiddo, my husband had gotten his first offer as a head coach, but it was an hour South, Mm -hmm. uh, almost two hours South of (laughs) Purdue actually. And so we decided he should go and begin his head coaching career. And I would stay behind to finish my master's degree. And I was very pregnant and I had this one and a half year olds. And I will say what got us through that early stages of living apart for, for a year is my sister-in-law saved me. Mm-hmm. She's younger. My husband's the oldest of four. And I called her up and I said, Hey honey, I, listen, I know you, you know, you're not in school at the moment. You can live here for free and I will literally pay for everything. Food. You have your own room, your own bed, but I need help caring yeah. for Zeke, my oldest while I'm pregnant. She stayed with me for a whole year. Wow. wow that's awesome. Yeah. And so shout out Jenny, <laughs> if you are listening to this, this is, I will tell her to the day we die. I would have never made it through that year without her ever. And my other two kids were born in the middle of wrestling season. Bad idea for anybody out there, but you know, we, my husband, and I didn't really plan our kids. They just happened. So my younger two are actually born a day apart in December. So they're exactly like two years wow. apart. And those pregnancies were almost ways for me to check out of my commitment as a coach's wife, because I knew I had other kids to take care of here. I am very, very pregnant and uncomfortable. And then when the newborn comes along, I'm, I'm nursing, breastfeeding, caring for all these kids. So I knew I couldn't invest myself that year Mm -hmm. in whatever was going on. And so managing all of that, (laughs) if there's such a thing is I just had to focus on one thing at a time. Yeah. You know, any, anytime I was doing something, I needed to focus on it. You know, I decided to start my PhD program in between the second and third child and knew that when I was at school, I was fully committed at school, which meant I had to make sure I had the best child care. So I did not worry. Mm -hmm. So if it, if it wasn't a family member, 
I was very picky on daycares and just feel like I've been so fortunate to find childcare. One that we can afford as a teacher salary (laughs) makes pennies and a coach's salary, which is less pennies. And I didn't make very much either. I was teaching. I taught some courses both at Purdue and Indiana University, but not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so we just said as an investment, I was going to take out student loans for myself. Mm -hmm. That was going to pay for childcare. But a lot of it was give and take. I had to, I made a lot of sacrifices and I still make personal sacrifices. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not flawless. (laughs) It's really hard to say, I know I need to write today for my PhD, or I know I need to work on this project for work, but my husband has the state tournament this weekend and cause kiddos sick. And this is just what I got to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's today. (laughs) So it was, you know, it's just been a process of ebb and flow. Your honesty though, is just incredible because one of the things that popped in my mind when I was listening to you speak is that not once did you quit school for yourself. You had all these factors going on. You had all this, these things thrown at you, just like life things. And we completely know that even though we're new, newer to the industry that it is, it's all about give and take. There's not really one cookie cutter answer of like, this is how you make it work and you survive. But I, I think that it's amazing that you never, you never quit your, on yourself for like what you wanted to do, whether you're master or what you were doing for your PhD. And I think that's just an incredible thing that you did. And diversity inclusion is such a huge topic. Brittany and I have been wanting to come on and speak about this because in the sports industry, it's huge. So just tell us, tell us a little bit about what you've learned so far, just with that education piece of diversity and inclusion. Okay. So I was born in Chicago and in, at a young age was raised by my grandparents. When my mom was ready to care for me, we ended up moving to Southern California, Los Angeles. And culturally I was one of very few white families and I was surrounded by many different cultures, communities, languages, foods, music, all of it. And so then when I, it was like high school, right before my freshman year in high school, my mom decided to move us to a small, very teeny tiny town in Wisconsin in Southern Wisconsin. I didn't fit in. Maybe my, my skin color was very similar to others. There was, I can't remember actually a person of color in my high school, at least those first couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I just did not feel included. I felt isolated a lot just for cultural reasons. And so When I got to Purdue as a way to kind of escape, I really couldn't stay at home. It was just not a good place. And that might be another conversation one day, but getting to college was an opportunity for me to open back up to different cultures and experiences. And my husband is multiracial. And so my children are also multiracial and kind of having this, this idea of what I thought I understood about culture Mm -hmm. and identity. There is not one definition there. There is not one clear way of identifying any of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that started also with when I was teaching women's health at Purdue, I remember having so many conversations with young women about uh, sexual orientation and the fact that it's not just gay, straight, bisexual, it is a scale of identity and you can be straight 
but also be very sexually attractive, attracted to the same sex. So it's this idea of identity and then having multiracial children made me realize that there's so much inequity when it comes to serving populations that are generally underserved. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean years, centuries of oppression. And and I'm going to try to do this justice as best as I can. But as a white woman, I own my privilege. Mm -hmm. I absolutely own my white identity and the privilege that comes with the color of my skin. And by owning it, I don't mean I am like, hey, I'm better than anyone else. I'm owning it by knowing what comes with it right. mm-hmm. and to not abuse those types of privileges. And you can do that really easily if you're not being consciously aware. Mm-hmm. And I think in the sports industry, what I have come across the most is this unconscious bias towards race, mm-hmm. towards gender, towards sexual orientation, towards religion towards age Mm -hmm. is huge. Mm -hmm. There's so much that we just unconsciously are, we make quick judgments or we think something. Some of us are not really good at not saying anything before we think about something. Mm -hmm. And we forget that sometimes these unconscious bias and the decisions that come along with it, whether it's intentional or not, we all do this. I mean, we have unconscious bias about everything, whether color preference or what we decide to wear today. I mean, it's, it's really a safety mechanism in a way for our brain to not be so taxed, Mm -hmm. but without truly being like, God, I messed up. Or like, I shouldn't have said that we need to own that. We have been part of a system that is hurting another group. Right. And how do we change it? I think when we often talk about diversity and inclusion, I'm going to challenge you both too to think about using the language justice in it as well, because we can talk about diversity initiatives. We can talk about being equitable or being inclusive, like who are we interviewing or who's being marketed or how are we serving all of our identities? But if there's no action behind it, I'm sorry. Like, At this point in 2022, what's the point? We Mm -hmm. have to put some action behind it. And so justice is the action component. It's what are we really doing to be socially just? And so I do that in a lot of different ways. In our school corporation, we have some of the largest refugee populations for Burmese, Myanmar area, and they're the Chin population, how they identify. And there's like 60 different dialects of language of the chin chin language when they come, when they arrive here and become housed here. And then we also have a Nigerian refugee population and most recently Afghanistan refugee population. And so we have 90 different languages. We are one of the most culturally diverse school corporations in the state. I can't speak on a national level. I'm not Mm -hmm. as familiar with those, but our diversity is large and wide. And so with our wrestling program, I'm always asking my husband, Hey, we know that our chin wrestlers, they are very much so religiously driven. Christianity is their religion, oftentimes Baptist. And I'm like, how, how can we, how can we include them in what we do? And currently a lot of the cultural groups aren't necessarily interested in having my husband in anywhere. They are very, we're going to take care of ourselves and this is what we're going to do. And we respect that. 
but my husband is always offering, Hey, do you guys want a free wrestling clinic, you know, at your church? Or do you want to have a cultural day where we, we bring in foods or talk about your holidays or like, he's constantly asking. And I'm always asking too, it's like, what, what can we do? How can we make you feel more involved Mm -hmm. considering wrestling as a, you know, seven days a week kind of sport. And so we have parents who, who will tell their kids they can't wrestle because they have church on Saturdays mm-hmm. and we wrestle on Saturdays. So it kind of stinks for the sport because of course we would love to have everybody come and wrestle, but then they also have their religious commitments. So that's like one, just one very small way. My husband's always trying to learn how to pronounce names correctly. We are all given names. Everybody out there, I hope you're listening to me when I say this, ask somebody how to say their name and truly practice it with that person. It makes people feel so loved when you're like, no, that is your name. And I want to get it right. I don't care if I don't know how to pronounce it. My husband will come home. It is the cutest thing. He's going to, he's going to make fun of me for saying this, but he'll come home with his roster for class and he will practice saying their names over and over and over again. So he knows that when he goes into the classroom the next day, he can confidently call on them or have a, you know, have a conversation where they aren't like, whatever, just call me, whatever. And Nick's like, no, 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 this is your name. You're, mm-hmm. you're given this name, you know, yeah. there's just a lot of different practices we can do. But for example, my husband's studying those names and truly asking and engaging, how do I pronounce your name? What, what makes you feel good when I, you know, when I say your name, that's part of justice, you know, diversity would be like, oh, I've got these chin, you know, these chin students and I welcome them, but you know, I'll try to help them. Inclusion will be, let's get everybody involved and everything, but really justice is what are we doing? Mm -hmm. What's the actions behind providing, you know, equity for our student athletes. So in higher education, what I do now in the med school, it's very interesting for a school. And I don't mean my institution, but medical colleges around the country for it being 2022, we are just now being like, gosh, we don't have a lot of images of people of color. Mm-hmm. For example, eczema is going to look very different on a lighter skin tone than it will on, on brown or black skin tones. And we are just now being like, this is necessary. It's needed. This is what we need to do. And so, you know, equity would be finding those images, putting it in, but justice would be let's hire somebody of this identity Mm-hmm. who can benefit from using their images here. It should be standard. Right. So a lot of it is, like I said, recognizing your own privilege yeah. and, and having conversations. We're so afraid to have conversations yeah. and we, sh- we, we shouldn't, but we got to own our shit sometimes, you know? Right. The unconscious bias that you, you mentioned earlier, it is definitely something that Ashley and I have both talked about as well. Just you've kind of realized in the past couple of years, which is really sad to say that this is now just coming to light and coming to a head. And, you know, you grew up one way and you just didn't even think anything about it. You know, you kind of just were in your own bubble. And I think now just starting to realize that, oh my gosh, I am really privileged and I didn't even realize my privilege. And that is the unconscious bias part of it. It's like, wow, this was going on all around me. And I just didn't even take myself out of my own space. And so 
like you mentioned, I think having those conversations and learning and growing is how we're just going to continue to move forward. It's not going to happen overnight, but it can be intimidating for some people. And especially I feel like in the sports industry, you know, things are they're shifting, but it's taking a little bit of a slower time than at least for my experience. I work at a university as well, and I think things are happening faster there than sometimes they yeah. happen in the sports industry. And for somebody wanting to take that like first step and being nervous about like, I don't want to do something wrong, but I want to kind of change my mentality and I want to move forward. Like what's that first step? Okay. First step would be you need to slow down. You know, like when we we're having conversations or when we're deciding what to buy, who to buy from, where to buy it from, when we are deciding maybe which one of our athletes we want to support or which program we want to stand behind. I think like in wrestling right now with us trying to sanction girls wrestling, which we're so far behind. We have so many female (laughs) wrestlers here in the state of Indiana. In fact, our Olympic team is majority. The girl women's wrestlers are from Indiana. I mean, It's so cool to see it, but we still haven't sanctioned it in high school. So even things like investing in women-owned businesses who Mm -hmm. make women's singlets. But when it comes to your unconscious bias, the first thing you need to do is slow down. Mm -hmm. You really need to take the time to slow down. Why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this way? And sometimes it could be from, like you said, from your childhood, it could be, you know, our grandparents told Mm -hmm. us one thing and it just stuck. Or we might have had a traumatic experience and then those kind of can carry over to something else. But step one is truly slowing down your thought process and Mm decision-making. The second step I would probably say would be to take the perspective of somebody else. So this is like, it's called perspective taking. If we think about, you know, Mm -hmm. even recognizing unconscious bias, if I were in this person, this other person's shoes, what would I want? How would I feel? Again, that's internal. These are all things we can do with ourselves by ourselves because we don't want to act on it yet because then we are engaging our privilege by just going on and be like, Oh, I I took this perspective and now I know what so-and-so wants and needs, and I'm going to go and do it. That's don't do that. (laughs) It is. I'd be like, girl, your privilege is showing, (laughs) you know, and you have to, you do have to like said, perspective taking is an internal thing. If you have no idea what perspective is, this is where I say we really need to expose ourselves to counter stereotypes. I had a somebody I was working with and they were like, well, I don't really understand what you mean by counter stereotypes. What, you know, what should I do? And I was like, well, let's pick, let's pick any identity, you know, or any identifying information. And so we went with gender. So male, female different types of genders that come in between non-binary cisgender. There's a lot of, a lot of terms there. And we were starting to think about stereotypes when it came to teaching and the things that kind of come up with traditional stereotypes. So countering counter stereotypes would be, um, maybe I have an unconscious bias towards female teachers thinking this way, but I actually one time had a female professor who was pregnant and was not moody and was the best pregnant teacher ever. And even when she had her baby, she brought her baby inside and even told us at some point, you guys sit with for five minutes, I got to go feed baby outside, that they are thinking of these counter stereotypes of what they might think, but they're exposing themselves. So it also might be something like finding a woman of color as a head of surgery in a med school or in, in the sports industry, 
we had in Indiana, I can give this example, another high school, not, it's not even in our conference, but it's in like the donut counties in Indiana. It's in Avon high school. Their middle school could not find a coach for wrestling. And a woman stepped in for, we call it now co-ed wrestling, but it was all boys on the team. (laughs) At least I think so. I'd have to go back and double check, but I'm pretty sure it was all boys on this middle school team. And here you have this woman coach who comes in. She had a record-breaking year, freaking bossed up. I was like, yes, mama. Like she did her thing. And that is an example of a counter stereotype where you think, oh, it should be a male because they've been wrestling for thousands of years more than women. Mm-hmm. And we have the stereotype that maybe men should be running boys programs, but the counter stereotype is that here's this woman who's done it and she's done it successfully. And so when you, you can expose yourself to those counters, that is good. And, and sometimes that takes very intentional work. And that's right. why I say you got to slow down because that works hard. And then as you start to kind of think about that, there's something called like mitigating bias. And these are truly active techniques that you can do now. I won't go into all of them because there's a lot, but when we mitigate our bias, it might really truly mean like not reading into names, not assuming like Ashley is a male or a female or in the sports industry too. It could be not assuming that just because somebody's on a boy's team that they identify as a boy or vice versa. Religious wise, you know, I, I will say in the wrestling community, we come across a lot of Mormon Mormons. There's, there is a relationship between really their dedication to religion and the sport itself. And it lends itself really well because of the type of dedication you, you give yourself. And so it would be not making those automatic assumptions about, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, they're Mormon, so they must wrestle or of Mm -hmm. course you wrestle because you're a Mormon and in Oklahoma, I mean, one of our assistant coaches from broken arrow, Oklahoma, and we know wrestling in Oklahoma is big. (laughs) So, you know, like truly slowing down, taking the time to recognize it, taking the time to change the way your thoughts are happening and then reflecting Mm -hmm. on, on the whole freaking process, because guess what? You're going to have to do it again and again. It's not a, it's not a one-time thing right? when it comes to, at least when it comes to unconscious bias, especially like you said, if you were lived a way of thinking for 30 years, and then all of a sudden you have to tell yourself, even though it feels automatically right, it's not right. Mm -hmm. Or I'm not okay with it. I've got to make a change. So then that process becomes a whole cycle. You're continually changing. And what I'm going to talk about today, watch two years from now, it'll be probably obsolete and we'll have a whole new set of language (laughs) and identities and the way we can process things like that. I'm just like in awe of everything you said, because you took this concept that is so huge and put it into terms that everyone can understand, because I think that is the most like the biggest reason why people don't act is because they're afraid to do the wrong thing. And I feel like they're not educated enough. I wasn't educated enough to even speak on the topic. Um, And I'm glad that you just shared all of that because it really is just at the beginning, you and who you are, and then doing the work of constantly just almost like analyzing, like, where am I coming from with this, with this thought and this practice? So I I absolutely love the way that you put everything, because I think that your education that you just shared will change so many 
thoughts, like where to start in the beginning. So thank you for that. And with the sports industry as a whole, for us being significant others, what can we do for the players or the coaches or the staff to be a better representative? Because we've been given this platform, all of Mm -hmm. us have in some capacity, And instead of just saying like, oh, you know, I show up to practice, I do this. How can we have an active role in our industry and each of our teams? I really can only speak from, you know, my experience. And I would want to encourage you to truly ask that, like seek out and ask that question from underrepresented populations. So there's this term called intersectionality, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's truly where these identities that have traditionally been oppressed, let's just say in American culture, and they all intersect. So it'd be like female, woman of color, English is their second language, and comes from maybe they're agnostic, you know, have no religion. And so all of these intersect in a way where they're all going to have their own different perspective. And so my act of justice to you, my call to you both would be really seek out these answers from others who are not like you or who are, who don't identify as you identify. So that's, that's number one. And I think as, as significant others who are supporting our coaches, my husband is, I know everything and I will give him ideas on coach. He's like, you see, you don't think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a good coach. And I think I know more than you. And of course I do that, you know, we have to remind our significant others sometimes when they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't mean wrong, like right or wrong. I mean, literally when it's just not okay, when something happens or when they say something that's not okay, or when my husband's home around my kids and you know, how, how he talks in the room, I don't want him to talk like that around my kids yet. Like, mm-hmm. just, like let's, let's not do that. But we have to kind of push our significant others to be better versions of themselves. And so I'm, I'm asking my husband, like, how do you envision your legacy? How do you envision when you're done coaching? I don't think he can even fathom that idea yet, but you know, I, I, I'm constantly dreaming about not him getting out of coaching, but truly like him being able to dedicate himself to maybe like just me (laughs) or (laughs) grand, you know, like grandchildren. And I'm like, Oh my God, if he could give me the type of attention he gives wrestling and his wrestlers and his parents all the time. Oh my God. (laughs) Like we would be like in love for the rest of our life. But there's been times when he's come home and he said like, this has happened. Or as a coach's wife, there have been things that I have seen or heard. For example, I'm a curvier woman. Okay. I identify as big. Like my daughter will, my daughter will literally be like, Oh mom, you're fat, but not in a bad way. Like she truly is like, Oh, you're just fat. And it is an identity, you know? And I, I will tell you right now, I'm okay with it. And in our house, we love privileged women. Like that's what we just, we just talk about it. You know, we also love all body types. You know, Mm -hmm. we are a body inclusive home. (laughs) And so I take pictures for our wrestling team. It's something I do for our families. I don't want our parents to have to come to these tournaments that are all day long Mm -hmm. and worry about if they're going to capture something. And so I take pictures and I love doing it, but I remember sitting on the side of the mat and another team's kid 
kept getting in my way of taking pictures because, you know, his teammates wrestling too. And I was like, excuse me, you know, can you not step in front? And I'll never tell a ref that because that's their job. So I get a lot of ref butts in my pictures and like everything else, but these kids, you know, and I'm like, I'm obviously sitting here. I'm a bigger woman. You obviously see me. So can you, you know, I didn't say that. I was like, listen, don't. And he goes, whatever fat bitch. And I just remember in that moment, I didn't go red, but I felt like it. And I stood up in a split second. I had to remember to say, don't start anything now because he's coaching and it won't be good for this kid. And he's just not good. You know, I stood up and I turned around and I said, you will never call me that again. When my husband is done coaching, I will talk to him. We will go talk to your coach. And if I have to find your parents in these stands, I will. His face went red, like just red. He knew he was in so much trouble. And I bring this up because when my husband was done coaching, we're done celebrating our kiddo and it was all great and grand. And we went back to the stand and the assistant coach was standing there too. I said, Hey, this kid from the school, uh, was very rude to me. And he's like, what did he say? And I almost didn't want to tell him. I was like, Oh no, this is not going to go good. And it's not even the fat part really. But the fact that that kid used the word fat to try to hurt my feelings. I was like, you have no idea. You are not hurting my feelings. I love my body and what it has done. But I, I told my husband and my husband and that assistant coach, like literally ran over to that other head coach and said what had happened. And I see this playing out in my head. Like, I don't know if my husband's going to go to jail today. Like, it's not going to be good. Here's where I say we can step in, right? Is that head coach came over to me and I said, this is what your kiddo said. And it's not okay for many reasons. I'm happy to talk to him about it. If he wants to learn why he, one, shouldn't call anybody that in the first place, but two, be disrespectful, three, call me the B word because he's being derogatory towards me. We can have this conversation. I'm cool. Let me educate. You know, (laughs) I don't think a lot of parents or moms or coaches, wives may do that, but I'm happy to do it. And he was like, okay, wait one second. Went over, grabbed the kid by the ear, drug him across this whole tournament gym. And I thought, oh, I hope if these kids' parents are here, they're coming too. They're coming. I like, I just know it's happening. He comes over here. This kid looks like he's going to cry. And I just looked at him and I said, you and I are going to have a conversation. When's your next, you know, when are you wrestling next? He's like, oh, I don't have like 50 bouts before I go. I'm like, take a seat. Like, let's, let's talk here. And so we ended up talking. And by the end of the day, I said, also, listen, I'm going to talk to your parents. So now that I know you and I know your coach is not okay with what you did, I'm going to talk to your parents. And then, you know, he, he actually said to me, he's like, I don't think you talking to my parents isn't going to change anything. And I realized in that moment that these Mm -hmm. kids learn from their parents Mm -hmm. and how their parents talk and communicate. And I knew that before, but it was almost like, now I see he, he, it's not that he doesn't want me to talk to his parents. He's like, good luck. Like, yeah, I'm kind of a jerk because my parents are kind of a jerk. And I'm like, okay, cool. Luckily. I mean, it's a school that we see often throughout the year to this day. I still talk to his parents. I'm like, Hey, how are you guys doing? Like what's going on? And what I'm doing is I'm trying to really counter the narrative of like the way we communicate to people. It can be hurtful. Uh, the way we talk, the way we think, the way we do things, like said that kind of like unconscious deciding to do things because we feel like it's safe and it's comfortable, Mm -hmm. but as significant others, we also have to challenge, not just the athletes. We have to challenge our coaches because they are always leading. Somebody's looking at them always. And I even noticed that with the girls in our program, 
they mentioned to me the other day about my skincare and like, Oh, Connie, your skin is glowing. I'm like, thanks girl. You know, these young girls they are, they're all into like things that I have no idea how to do those things, but they mentioned something about, Oh, you know, it must be beauty counter. And I realized in that moment too, that how do they even know that? Like, I don't share it with them. I don't talk to them about that, but that they're looking at adults Mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. And college sports are no different. Professional sports are no different. How the coaches act, our athletes are going to act in the way our coaches, you know, what our coaches invest in, our athletes are going to invest in. So I think part of our jobs as significant others is truly to coach the coach. Mm -hmm. And what better person to do it than you when you absolutely adore and love this person, want them to be the best version of themselves. So that's the way I look at it is I'm, and he, he doesn't like it. You know, when I say stuff, he's like, I can say whatever I want. I can, I know how to coach these kids and blah, blah, Uh blah. And then of course, two weeks later, he comes up with this great idea. And I'm like, Oh (laughs) yeah. Wow. That's, that's great. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I love that. That's the important part is we're able to provide that perspective that they don't have. And sometimes they're so in the zone of what they've always yes. done. And, and they are, you know, masters of their craft, which is obviously amazing, which is yes. why they are where they're at. But we're able to provide that perspective that they can't get sometimes. And I love the way that you put that because I think that's on us. You know, we do have that role and it's amazing that we can choose to do that. So We just love everything that you've said, but we have one more last question. So if you can go back in time and tell yourself, your younger self, one thing that you've learned that would help you today, what would that be? So I'd probably write myself a book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think there will ever be enough time for me to talk about who I am today from where I came from. So first of all, my biological father, I didn't have one. My grandparents raised me while my mom was going through some health issues and being kind of transplanted all over the place with a mom who really was doing the best she absolutely could, but it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So not having a father figure ever. And then, you know, truly I realize now too, like sports were how I found family Mm -hmm. because my home was so dysfunctional. And then I had a sister who was 10 years younger than me. And I pretty much raised her the best that I could as a child And so sports were my way of doing these things. And I look now today in my marriage is I never had a marriage where I was like, you know, that I saw regularly, not even like my grandparents were married forever, but they bickered a lot. You know, my papa's past and grandma, if you hear this, I love you. And you did great (laughs) Um, because I'm sure my grandfather wasn't the easiest sometimes to deal with, but I had no idea how to do this marriage thing. And I mean, I knew marriage wasn't going to be easy, but I was like, oh, you know, if you love somebody, it'll all work out for the best, you know, or I thought this idea of in order for a marriage to work, you had to, you had to constantly not change yourself, but definitely like give in to things. And through the course of our, our marriage, I look back now and wish, wish I truly would have been who I am today then Mm -hmm. and allowed my husband to decide if that's who he was ready to marry and commit to, because through things that have happened through our marriage, I have learned that I cannot second guess who I am in our marriage, Mm -hmm. not to a coach, not to somebody, like you said, who is literally knows everything about everything and who is constantly having to really put his love and energy into a community that doesn't have it. 
So a lot of our athletes don't have what he would, you know, think that's good for them. And I just kind of sat back sometimes and didn't speak up for what I needed or say what I needed. I just assumed that he knew because he said he loved me. Therefore he knew that, you know, I needed more attention or I needed this and this. And I will never again, assume what somebody needs when it comes to taking care of me. Our partners are not mind readers and we can't expect them to know what we need if we're not telling them. Mm -hmm. And by, by getting pissed off or angry and being like, I told you, I needed you to help me with the dishes two weeks ago. And you've only done them once, you know, my husband needs to be reminded every single day. (laughs) And I have learned now that's not an intentional thing. He never, ever set out to ignore me or, or not take care of me or any of those things. It's truly that his mind is mentally taxed Mm -hmm. every single day. Mm -hmm. And while I hate being an afterthought, sometimes at least I know that if I put it in his ear, that that's what I need. And then, then he chooses not to do it. That's a whole nother like (laughs) argument, you know, but if I don't actually tell him what I need and what I want or who I am or what I want for myself, if I don't allow him to be part of my dreams, he won't be right. He won't do those things. Yeah. So that's what I would tell myself is that like from day one, just be who I am and ask for what I need up front mm-hmm. yeah. and let him decide then if he wants to keep going. Yeah. yeah. Well, Connie, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we have learned so much from our time together and I'm sure that our audience has absolutely loved listening as well. And if anyone wants to find you or ask questions or just yeah. be a part of your journey, where are you on Instagram? Yes, I'm on Instagram, counter with Connie. So C-O-U-N-T-E-R with Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E. I'm an authentic person. I'm an open book. So if you ever have any questions or need anything, let me know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Again, we really love talking with you. And to everyone that's listening, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on More Than a Season Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at More Than a Season Podcast for the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this episode, please download, subscribe, or leave us a review on your choice of platform. See you next time.